You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Great to be with you. In fact, um, Angel and I are so thankful for this church, Liberty Church, uh, the friendship that we've enjoyed with you over the years. As we served there in Dubai, even as I walked in this morning, I was telling Matt earlier, just seeing those pictures of the story of Liberty uh, Churches, but also Liberty Harrisburg in particular, uh, and just remembering meeting Matt many, many years ago uh, here in Harrisburg, as both of us uh, have come to this this city in different ways through uh, Angela's family, who's here with us this morning, so good to see everyone there, although you see Barb and Mike more often, uh, so that's not a surprise to you. but then it's been good just to be friends with this church and to be supported by you, uh, to pray with you and for you for God's glory to go out here in Harrisburg and uh, in Dubai as well. We do serve there in Dubai. Uh, Redeemer is a church of many nations uh, seeking to make disciples of all nations. That's what we say. Dozens and dozens of nationalities coming together in that city that's at a crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, it's an unlikely story, really. Uh, this place in the desert uh, that has become a, a metropolis. Uh, it wasn't expected, it wasn't um, anticipated, but the Lord brought it about through the modern miracles of urbanization and modernization. There were people that came there many, many years before any of that was a reality. Uh, one of those couples that came to the UAE that is not from there, not a local Emirati person, uh, was a couple named the Kennedys, Pat and Marion Kennedy. Pat, Pat was a doctor, uh, Marion alongside of him. They came to the UAE, and at that point it wasn't the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. It was just something called the Trucial States. You see, there was nothing valuable about that part of the world, at least that people knew of at the time, if only they did, uh, for those European conquering nations to have any uh, reason to colonize that part of the world. So they just made some truces uh, with those Bedouin tribes so that they could pass through on their way to their Uh, colonial properties like India and others. And so the trucial states were just sitting there, not much interest, not much going on, some tribes in the desert. And Pat and Marion Kennedy came to do some good. They came because at that time, it's estimated about half of infants died during childbirth. And about a third of mothers were passing away because of complications of childbirth thereafter. The Bedouin people there, the Emirati people, were literally going extinct. And these doctors came and opened what was to become the first hospital. And the need was for a maternity hospital. And so that's what they did. They opened a maternity hospital in the desert. And by God's grace, over the years, the Lord gave um, a blessing to their work. They saw good happen. Over 4,000 children born at that hospital. The local people um, have said in in the news that if the Kennedys hadn't come, their people might not be there now. The hospital is now called the Kanad Hospital, after what the locals uh, refer to them as, the Kennedys. We praise God for the good that they did. And they went there and they did that because of the goodness that they had experienced from the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no earthly blessing to that. There was no fellowship that they were going to enjoy in that desert place. They were the only Westerner for hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. But they went to do good because they had seen and tasted the goodness of the Lord. We're looking at Scripture this morning, 
and we're reflecting together in the midst of the series that you have been on as a church to think about and reflect on, to taste and to see the goodness of God. And what I'm, what I'm leaning on today is all of those previous messages that you've been hearing and, and reflecting on and seeing God's goodness and how it plays out in our world. And specifically, we're going to focus on this morning how that relates to our goodness. What does it look like for us to be those who do good because we've seen the good of God? And is that even something that we should aspire to do? Well, Galatians chapter 6 will be our guide, and let's read that now. If you have your Bibles, or if you can tap to one, or you see one there in the pews, Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And I'll read this to us and then pray for us. This is the word of the Lord. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for transformation. We believe your truth by the power of your spirit can open our eyes to the transformation that we need to the glory of Christ. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we're going to approach this text this morning and work through it through two sort of main headings, two things that I think we see here in these two verses. One is a call to action, and the other is a caution with an encouragement. So a call to action and then a caution with an encouragement. And the call to action we see there is to do good. And maybe as I read those verses and even told a bit of that story, depending on your religious background, your church background, you might have been completely unsurprised by that topic. Or you might have found it a little bit unexpected. You might have found it unsurprising in that, of course, that's what the preacher is going to do. You show up at church on Sunday, you're going to be told, don't drink too much, don't swear, don't dance. Be a little bit more like Ned Flanders, a little bit less like Homer Simpson. That's what preachers do. That's our job. Perhaps that's been your experience in your background. Perhaps other of you come from another perspective, though. Maybe you've been drinking deeply of this gospel of grace that Jesus Christ has bestowed unmerited favor based on his finished work on the cross. And we are saved not based on any work of our own, but only of his. And so we might think, what's, what's Paul doing here? Do good? How can he simply lay out this imperative to us to do good? Maybe Paul's a little confused. Well, I want to encourage and challenge both of those perspectives because both of those perspectives reveal a distortion of the true joy of the Christian life, the beauty of the journey that we are invited and welcomed into by his grace for his glory through his goodness. You know, theologian Greg Beale teaches this. You resemble what you revere, either for ruin 
or restoration. Let me say that again. You resemble what you revere, either for ruin or restoration. And you know, as you've been talking about the goodness of God in this series, you've been being welcomed into a reverence for his goodness, to see him for who he is and that he is fit for purpose. That's what goodness means. He is to be desired more than fine gold. That's what goodness is. That God is to be revered in his goodness. And so what this theologian is telling us is, is as we revere, as we look and as we behold, we come to resemble for ruin or for restoration. Because you see, if what we're looking at is not pure, then we become to resemble what is impure. But if what we're looking at is good, then we will begin to resemble what is good. And that's what Paul is bringing out for us here in Galatians, that there's a resemblance that we take on as believers because of the goodness of God. Now, we've not only parachuted into this sermon series that you've been going through, but we've also parachuted into the end of Galatians. And if we knew the context of the book of Galatians, you might even find this admonition here in Galatians 6, chapter or verse 9 and 10, to be all the more surprising. That in this book, in particular, that Paul is sending out this calling to do good works. If you're familiar with Galatians, you know that Paul has been systematically working through these six chapters to berate them to challenge them and to exhort them not to put confidence in their good works. Galatians chapter 1 begins with Paul giving a characteristically pleasant greeting, but then skipping quite quickly by verse 6 into the main item of business. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Oh, Okay, Galatians Church is a little surprised. They thought they were getting a nice letter from their pastor, from Paul, and it's some bad news. He's astonished by them. What happened to the grace of God? Why are they turning to a different gospel? This gospel is one that doesn't look to the grace of Christ, but it's one that takes the gospel and walks in a way that's not characteristic of that gospel. Paul gives an example in chapter 2 that this temptation to do that is even one that apostles can fall prey to. Peter himself, at a, at a, in a certain occasion, has fallen prey to that. He has behaved in a way that's inconsistent with the gospel. They're starting to communicate that your behavior is what makes you acceptable in this community. So Paul shows that he's bold enough to even confront Peter when Peter does that. And then maybe the Galatians are taking a a deep breath. And they're thinking, okay, yeah, Peter, he was a bad example. We get that. But we're on it, Paul. Don't worry about it. So Paul's going to let off? No. Chapter 3, verse 1, he takes the attitude to 11. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So let's just make it real clear what Paul is doing here. If you were someone that was coming in here this morning, 
And again, your background was one where you thought, yeah, Christian, Christians are nice people. And so to be a Christian, I've just got to do some nice things. That is not what Paul's calling us to. The gospel is not be nicer. The gospel is not if you are nice, then you will be accepted. The gospel is that Christ has died and paid the penalty for all of our sins according to his grace and has now by his power and the basis of his righteousness accomplished what can happen to us in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, friends, salvation is not by your works. Salvation is not by being a nicer person. Salvation is brought about by the grace of God through the Son of God for our salvation so that we could become sons. Tim Keller puts it this way, religion says if you obey, then you're accepted. The gospel says you are accepted. Therefore, you can obey. This is your invitation and your opportunity And again, if you're one of those who thought that you could just nice your way into salvation, think about it this way. If you had stomach cancer, how much jogging would cure that cancer? Would a 5K do it? Would a 10K do it? If you ran a half marathon, would that stomach cancer finally give up and say, okay, I get it. You're Usain Bolt. You, you, You beat me. No, no amount of external exertion of your legs is going to do anything to cure your stomach cancer. In a similar way, no amount of being nice is going to win for you the salvation that will actually purify your soul. But again, speaking to those of us who have drunk deeply of that gospel of grace and are so thankful for the grace we've received in Christ that it's not based on our merit, but only on his his precious work on our behalf, that we've been forgiven from all of our sins. There can be a temptation in us to then say, hey, don't don't come after me with that doing good stuff, because I I might put my hope in that. I don't want to put my hope in my good works, and so, so I'll just kind of be here, being thankful that I'm forgiven. That's only part of the gospel. Because the gospel that leads us into salvation by grace leads us into a life that by grace we begin to resemble what we revere. Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Whole in Our Holiness. He's talking about the holiness that's called upon us as believers. And he references the book that we're looking at this morning. He says, not only is holiness the goal of your redemption, It is necessary for your redemption. Now, before you sound the legalist alarm, tie me up by my moral bootstraps and feed my carcass to the Galatians, a very vivid analogy, we should see what Scripture has to say. It is the consistent and frequent teaching of the Bible that those whose lives are marked by a habitual ungodliness will not go to heaven. And we need to let those words land on us. Because I think Kevin DeYoung is right. That lives that are marked by habitual ungodliness represents someone who is not revering the goodness of God and seeing that become resembled in their lives for their restoration. But someone whose life is marked by habitual ungodliness 
is revering something else because his life resembles a pattern of ruin. And this idea is not inconsistent with the teachings of Paul. Galatians 6 is not a slip of the pen as Paul was trying to wrap up his letter and he quickly threw in, do some good works as a sign-off. We could look at the book of Titus and I encourage you to do that later. That'll be your homework today. What you'll notice there in the book of Titus is that Paul clearly calls them to the gospel of grace. He clearly commends them to think about what Christ has done on their behalf, saying this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Titus is Paul's celebration of that gospel of grace, but then time and time again, he says that elders are to be lovers of good, that false teachers are those who are unfit for good works, that Timothy is to show himself as a model of good works, that there is going to be in the gospel an effect that when Jesus purifies for himself a people for his own possession, they are going to be zealous for, can you guess? Good works. Everyone in chapter 3 is to be reminded to be ready for every good work. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Paul saw no contradiction, whether here in Galatians or in Titus or any of his other writings, between calling those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ to manifest that in their life through their good works. When a vine produces grapes at the harvest season, does anyone look at the vine and say, why are those grapes there? What's that vine trying to prove? No, we take that as the natural outflow of the nature of this thing. It's there to produce grapes. And we celebrate it and drink our wine with gladness, as Psalm 104 tells us to do, that the Lord has provided it. And in the same way, when we see good works coming out of our life, the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to walk in, we praise the Lord. And we say, yes, this is, this is what I would expect of the Spirit. And it's now my joyful opportunity to enjoy the goodness that is coming in my life because of what Christ has done by his Spirit. Well, if you buy into that, and you can see that actually by, by appreciating and worshiping the beauty of Christ, that that would lead me to a life of good works, I want to receive that call to action. I want to be someone who is obedient to Galatians 6, and I want to do good. What would that look like? What that would look like, we can see even here in our text. Paul gives us some shape to that call. He writes in verse 10, So then, as we have an opportunity, let's do good to everyone. So there's to be a posture of readiness to do good. Now, as we have opportunity, you have to be careful as you read that because you could read as we have opportunity to be, maybe Paul's giving a sense of passivity. Oh, as I have an opportunity, okay, if, if I get a chance. If I get a chance, I'll do some good. Yeah, I'm busy. You know, the kids have sports. There's Netflix to watch. But if I get a chance, if I have an opportunity, sure, Paul, I'll do some good things. Is that what Paul's calling us to? No. That's the, not, now, now, occasionally, there are things that come to us surprisingly to do good. An opportunity comes up that we didn't expect 
to do some good, to encourage someone, to bless someone. We didn't expect it. The opportunity arose. We can engage to God's glory. But I think what Paul is calling us to here is not a passivity, but to an activity. And we see this especially as we think about it in light of other texts like 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter calls the disciples, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Or James, famously writing in his epistle, faith without works is dead. It seems like the apostles and the writers of the New Testament felt an urgency about the doing of good. They wanted there to be an ambition to do good, and to have an opportunity means that they were asking us and exhorting us to look into what it could look like to do good. Have you ever seen the show Shark Tank? Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. Shark Tank is a a show uh, where there's a panel of billionaires and aspiring billionaires um, who sit there, and they have these people come who have invented different products or things that they want to put on the market, but they need investors. So they do their pitch, and these, this panel of sharks is looking at it and taking notes, and they're examining and they're peering into, and they're sorting out in their mind, is there an opportunity for me here? Now, you need to be careful with this metaphor, because I would not say that all of them are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit as they do that. But the point is, the point is, do we as Christians manifest that same eagerness and ambition to find opportunities to do some good? Are we coming here on a Sunday morning simply to receive, simply to check off a box in a religious to-do list and go our merry way? Or are we coming here, track with me, like sharks? Okay, I want to give you permission to be sharks in the church. That's a new metaphor, okay? It's not a wolf, it's a shark, okay, Matt? (laughs) Come in here eager and ambitious to see, is there going to be an opportunity for me to do some good today? Is there someone who needs some encouragement that I could come alongside, and as we chat over coffee in the coffee hour, there's an opportunity that comes to my mind that I think there's a way I could serve this person this week. Maybe there's a way I can serve this person right now and pray for them. Are we aware of those opportunities and looking for them? Because that's the posture that Paul's calling us to here, to be, to be ready for those opportunities. But then as he gives us that, that sense of readiness, he also gives us a sense of the scope of who should be eligible for that good that we are to do. Did you see it there? Again, in verse 10, who is it that should be the recipients of our good? Everyone. Everyone. Now, it might be easy for us to focus on the last part of the verse, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, and then to take that as a sort of pass to the fullness of what Paul's calling us to here. Because Paul's call to do good to everyone, we need to catch the remarkable nature of the grand scope of that ambition. Wait, wait, wait. Do good to everyone? Do good to everyone, even the people that have in their front yard signs that make me uncomfortable? Do good to everyone, even the people that post 
News articles from those blogs I don't like. Do good to everyone, even people from that country. Do good to everyone, even the people that have lifestyles I disagree with. Do good to everyone, even my family member that annoys me. Yeah, Paul says. Do good to everyone. Do good to everyone. And then he gives that emphasis on the household of faith because Paul and the New Testament writers care about integrity. You think about the qualifications for an elder. An elder is to be someone who is well thought of at home. And an elder is to be one who is well thought of in the church. And an elder is to be one who is well thought of in the world. Outsiders, even. And in a similar way, we can't be those that simply look out on the world and see the good that we can do and put our money in the, in the uh, Salvation Army box and, and support the well digging in Africa and say, we're doing good to everyone. But then the people around us that know us best have never experienced that. It's a great indication that actually that do-gooding is an effort to calm the, the guilt that we feel rather than be a true manifestation of the heart that we have. The people that are closest to you should be ones that receive love from you. So let me ask again. For you, as you come on a Sunday or as you go to a picnic, as you gather in a community group, as you simply sit in your home and and think through the members of this church, do you know them? Does this household of faith know you as a good-doing person? The answer, hopefully, would be yes. That's not a bad thing. That doesn't make you Ned Flanders. That doesn't make you someone who's seeking your salvation and your good works. It makes you someone who's worshiping the Lord through loving other people. And we should normalize that and celebrate it. That serving and loving one another is a good thing. And then take that out into the world. You know, my last comment on this. Global headlines this week. Maybe you saw this article or these articles. It was, a, it was a profound thing. Something people hadn't seen in ages. Two professionals in polar opposites ideologically. One actually spoke positively about the other. It was amazing. It made international news. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor commented positively about her ideological opposite, Clarence Thomas. She was before a liberal audience. She could have thrown in a a cheap zinger line, a laugh line to mock him, but she actually acknowledged their common humanity. She spoke winsomely of the value that he brought to the court. And that made international news. And that should tell us something about the world that we live in, where people do not expect someone to do good to everyone, but they expect people to do good to people like them. And so, friends, that's how easy it is for us to be obedient to this passage in our world today, to simply speak nicely, to be kind to others. And I want to call you to consider doing that in all of your conversations. Well, we've seen a bit of the scope that Paul has, the posture that we should have to be ready for every opportunity, to do good to everyone, even the household of faith. And lastly, before we move on from this call to action, you might still be saying, but Scott, what are the specifics of what this could look like? You're not giving me clarity on what doing good could look like. 
Well, for that, you really have to read through the entire scriptures because there's a lot there. As Kevin DeYoung was reminding us of, as as we look through the entire scripture, we're going to see that doing good is integral, not exceptional to our Christian life. Integral is the call to doing good. But even right here in Galatians chapter 6, if you've got your Bible open, if you just let your eyes wander up a little bit into the earlier bit of the chapter, as I was reading this this week, I just was struck by how clearly Paul is giving a shape of what a good-doing life would look like right here in these verses. Let me try and tick these off quickly for us. In verse 1, he's talking about if someone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Doing good this week could look like helping a sinner be restored to honor. You know, a lot of times when someone is caught in a sin, that could mean they're trapped in it. That could mean they've been exposed in it. They were caught. Aha. But our job, our goal, doing good to them would look like going near to them and restoring them. Not gossiping about them to our friends and saying, hey, did you see what happened to him? Not leaving him there and saying, man, I hope he really figures that out because that's, that's bad. But we go to him. Doing good could look like reaching out to the sinner, covering their shame, helping them repent in a spirit of gentleness. Paul also goes on to say, we need to be those who bear one another's burdens and that we fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens could be the consequences of their sin. It could also be the experience of their sufferings. But there might be some good that you can do this week to bear someone else's burden of sadness, to weep with those who weep, to support those who are, who, are, who are weak and lonely. That could be a way to do good in this community. Another, for if anyone thinks he is something, verse 3, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A great way for you to do good this week is to be humble, to pursue humility. Rather than thinking of yourself first, why are you thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, thinking of yourself as something, Remember that you're nothing. That's the encouraging word for you on Father's Day today. <laughs> Remember that you're nothing. Remember that you're nothing. Our kids are going to Harvey Cedars Camp in New Jersey this week. And I remember in camp growing up, one of the things that they used to tell us and teach us was the principle of I'm third. It's so simple and profound. God first, other second, I'm third. Now, I know there's self-care. You need to care for yourself. And there is wisdom in knowing when there's limits before putting others first at every point. But our general posture as Christians must be, what, is, what do they need? How can I help? What would it look like to be more of a giver than a receiver? I want to be third. Lord, don't let me think more highly of myself than I ought. That would be doing good. A couple more. Support the teaching of the gospel. Verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. The principle here is that when, when there's teaching going on, when the gospel is going forth, an act of good is being done to you. And so there's a way in which you can become a conduit of that blessing, the good that's being done to you, to bestow that upon others and to return it to the one who gave it by encouraging and affirming. 
And I want to encourage you as a church, you have elders in this church that love you. I know your, your elders, some of them pretty well. I've never heard them speak an evil word about you as a church. They don't complain about you. And I'm sure there's probably things to complain about. I'm an elder in a different church. They love you. Friends, encourage them. That doesn't mean that they're without criticism, that you can't bring any concerns that you have about your elders. Of course, have good conversations with them. But encourage them. Return good things to those who entrust the gospel to you. What about those who are serving over in the kids' ministry? They're teaching good things to the children. How can you encourage them? How can you help them continue on in their ministry? Let's share all good things with the ones who teach. Lastly, what would it look like for us to follow verse 8? For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's this principle of sowing and reaping. And doing good for you this week might be eliminating temptations to do bad. Because there is that need in our lives. There is that need to put off the old man and to put on the new man and to realize that what we will sow, we will reap. And so we cannot simply, again, stand there and say, I'm forgiven, but I'm going to keep sowing into this field of unrighteousness and hope that something good will happen. But we must say, no, I'm forgiven, and therefore I'm now free to sow into this field of goodness and of the Spirit to see life come about in my own heart and in that of others. So what, what needs to happen this week for you to unhinderedly be ready to do good? What needs to be eliminated in your life so that you can sow to the Spirit? That might be the good that you can do this week. To look through the closet, to look through the computer, to ask a friend, what do you see in my life that's hindering me from taking opportunities to do good? That could be a good that you could do this week. Well, friends, God is good. He's good to us in the gospel. He has done good to us, something that is fitting and is lovely in saving us and calling us to him as sons. And that frees us to do good. And so this call to action from Paul is good. And it's right for us to hear. And it's right for us to engage in. It's a joy for us to experience. And he also gives us, I mentioned, a caution with an encouragement. And here it is in verse 9. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Have you ever felt weary in doing good? Now, there might be some of you in here this morning who are saying, actually, I've never tried. Um, but be that as may, I would encourage you to try to do good. But I think all of us really actually can end up relating to that. That doing good can be wearisome. It can be wearisome because some of us are looking for it to solve the burden of our conscience. We're trying to do good to make up for our bad. And friends, as you already know, the testimony of your heart convicts you. That your good is not accomplishing the, the hope that you have to assuage your conscience. There's a guilt, and it's wearisome. And to you, I would say, turn to Christ. 
If you've never looked to Christ for salvation, if you've never found the power of the resurrection life, the freedom that comes from him, friend, do that today. Turn to Christ and find that his burden is light. Some of us are wearisome in doing good because we don't, we're not seeing the impact. We've been trying really hard, but we're realizing that our good works are never going to be enough to solve the problem. We've been, we've been working hard in our workplaces. Maybe you've been trying to, to help the, this problem at work, and there's this, this one coworker who's really kind of a nuisance, and he's causing these problems, and you've been trying, and it's just not getting any better. Maybe your burden for social issues. You, you've been really working hard on some issue in the community, and it's just not getting any better. There's always going to be more to do. We're never going to see the full results of our efforts. It can be wearisome. But what does Paul tell us? What is the encouragement? Know that in due time, if we do not grow weary, we will reap in due season. And friend, we need to remember that promise of the gospel. That in due time, in the season when God is ready, the fruit will be there. The fruit unto salvation and the fruit unto his glory in the world. So if you're weary today, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, because there will come a time when the good works that you have done will be to his glory. The Kennedys that I mentioned earlier, you know, they never saw fruit from their work in the UAE in a certain way. Although they delivered over 4,000 Emirati babies, not one of those would come to faith based on their witness there in the UAE that we are aware of. But one of those, actually several of them, will become the rulers of the UAE. The current president of the UAE, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, was born at the Oasis Hospital. And because of the witness, because of the good that those medical missionaries did, in the words of the rulers, they loved us before there was oil. There was good that they did to those people, only on the basis of Christ. And because of that, the permission that we now have to worship in Dubai is because of the goodwill that began from that relationship. So although the Kennedys didn't see fruit in terms of evangelistic success with the Emiratis, there is now gospel ministry happening among dozens and dozens of nationalities in that place, directly because of the good that they did. We don't always see that kind of direct impact to fruit, even those 50 years later, 60 years later. But it is a reminder to us that that's the kind of thing that our God does. So if you're a father laboring here this morning in your family and you haven't seen the good yet, don't give up. If you're a mother who's laboring this morning, feeling weary, don't give up. For all of us in our churches, in our workplaces, and the good that the Lord is calling you to do, don't give up. Because Jesus has redeemed you, and he will redeem the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, the one who is reconciling all things to himself, putting everything to right. Lord, we ask that you would make us wise unto that salvation, that you would open our eyes to the good that you have called us to do. Give us the joy, Father, of good works that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in. 
because you have been good to us. And we long to do good in this world that you have created. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.